Welcome to the Peter King Podcast, where this week it's actually going to be only a little bit about football and mostly about life. It's a converse to what I usually do, but every year for Father's Day, I do some book recommendations because I figure that your daddy, your uncle, your brother, or your grandfather has enough ties has enough gift cards, and he wants you to go out and get him something that can actually help his life. And so every year, I do reviews of five or six books. I put them in my column. Only this year, I'm on vacation during my column. So I tweeted out some books the other day, and I've got two of the authors of those picks, of my picks this year, Somehow, someway, I think it'd be hard to get John Grisham on my podcast. I'm not positive. But anyway, uh, John Grisham's book, The Reckoning, is one of my books this year that I really like it. So anyway, I've got two authors. Uh, Number one uh, is John Urschel. You may recognize that name. He's a former guard for the Baltimore Ravens who surprisingly retired at age 26 to become a Ph.D. student at MIT in mathematics. He's doing exceedingly well, and he has written a book uh, with uh, his partner, Louisa Thomas, called Mind and Matter, A Life in Math and Football. Just a fascinating book because it really talks about how if you exercise both your body and your brain, you're going to really have a great life, at least That's John Urschel's experience. Next, uh, we're going to have a writer for the New York Times. His name is John Branch. He's a Pulitzer-winning writer for the Times. And he wrote a really great book called The Last Cowboys, A Pioneer Family in the New West. And it's about uh, a family of ranchers, a husband, wife with their 13 kids, who are still trying to make a go of a very difficult business, ranching, Uh, In the Old West, uh, they live on the outskirts of Zion National Park in Utah. Um, And I talked to John a little bit, I mean, a lot about the book, but also about writing, because I think he is one of the best, not only best sports writers in America today, one of the best writers, you know, in general in the United States today. So we're going to have both of those conversations coming up. But first, I want to delve into one thing that has happened in the NFL in the last couple of weeks that I don't know why it just really gets my goat and it has to do with the prospect of an 18 game schedule so Mike Florio at Pro Football Talk who has always wanted the 18 game schedule and other writers um, have and basically I'm sure are echoing what some people in the NFL and some owners would like which is two more weekends of football games so that the sport that is the richest sport in America uh, can become even richer. And um, I I just find the whole pursuit of an 18-game schedule, unless every player other than punters and kickers on a football team could play a maximum of 16 games, regular season games per year, And what drives me out of my mind and has for years is what is happening on the outside of this sport. And what's happening on the outside of this sport is that over and over again, we see more and more players year after year, 
um, either succumb in a later in later years to some uh, uh, head trauma related disease, whether it's dementia caused by football or presumably caused by football or ALS or something that no one can prove absolutely that it's caused by football, but clearly exposing your brain to 120 more minutes of professional football per year and how anybody thinks that's a good idea for the long-term health and well-being of the players in this game, I just think is categorically insane. And I think that it is irresponsible by the NFL if they are pursuing it seriously. And I think it would be irresponsible by the Players Association, which has time and time again said we do not favor the 18-game schedule. They need to stick to that. But uh, again, I proposed this a couple of years ago when the 18-game schedule, thoughts of it were hot and heavy. I proposed that every player other than kickers and punters uh, basically be exposed to no more than 16 games, regular season games per year. And so I've heard all the arguments and I've heard people say essentially, well, look, you know, because they, you know, you can shield players, you can have maybe bigger rosters and you can make sure that, that uh, players don't get exposed as much uh, to as many hits. Um, I think the biggest problem with trying to say to a coach who's going to have maybe five or six or eight more players on the roster, so therefore uh, the average player might not play as many snaps in a game, I think that's wishful thinking. Do you think that the New York Giants are going to take Saquon Barkley out of a game uh, just because they've the Giants have played 84 snaps and it's late in the fourth quarter, and they need to drive to score to win. They're not going to do that. Do you think the Patriots voluntarily, do you think Bill Belichick is going to take Tom Brady out of any game? No, he's not. In other words, the sport needs to be protected from itself. And that is why, in my opinion, there is no way that uh, the league should entertain the concept of an 18-game regular season unless... And this has to be underlined in bold marker, unless um, that each player, other than kickers and punters, uh, be prohibited from playing no more than 16 games per year. So all I would say is if you love football and you really love the game itself, you love the players in it and all that, um, I just do not think that you should root for an 18-game schedule. The game is dangerous enough as it is, and I just hope, and I think it's going to fall on deaf ears, but I just hope that anyone who's listening to this would just have an alarm bell go off in their head and basically say, listen, enough is enough. 16 games is plenty. Four months of a regular season is absolutely enough. We don't need any more. And a few extra millions uh, is not worth uh, the damage, potential damage to these players 10, 15, 20 years down the road. And now my conversation with John Urschel, the author of Mind and Matter. 
back on the Peter King Podcast. So happy to be joined by one of the most interesting men who I've ever met in my life. His name is John Urschel, and he has a book out now, which is why he is on the Peter King Podcast Father's Day Book Edition. And the book is called Mind and Matter, A Life in Math and Football. And John Urschel, for those of you who don't know it, this is also written with Louisa Thomas, uh, who, John, I believe now is your wife. Yeah. Yeah. True. And so anyway, um, you are a former starting guard for the Baltimore Ravens who quit football in mid-career to pursue your other passion, uh, which is mathematics. You're now a and correct me if I'm wrong, a PhD mathematics student at MIT. And I don't know exactly how much higher you can get in the student business of any, uh, you know, of, of any discipline. But being a PhD student at MIT is, is really pretty cool. But anyway, welcome to the podcast and happy to have you and happy to be talking about your book. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm happy to be here. We haven't uh, we haven't chatted in a while. Yeah, we. Uh, so, you know, I I just I I have to tell you one quick story uh, that that I think just says what is so cool about your life. Maybe two years ago, I think in the spring, I was in Boston, and you at the time uh, were living up there and going to school, and you. Uh, basically met me at my hotel in Boston. We recorded a podcast about your interesting life. And uh, I don't know, you left me maybe about 9.30 or so. And I said, what are you going to do tonight? And he said, well, uh, I'm going to go home and give Louisa a chess lesson. And uh, because she's got a chess tournament this weekend. (laughs) And I just thought that was the coolest thing that uh that you're you're so into you're so into so many things it's so much fun to talk to you that you know what was really cool for you that night is chess and uh, that's another one of the things in your life that you're pretty good at yeah no it's uh it's something chess is something i enjoy and also i don't know i think it's this is something sort of i think any couple or any sort of married couple can relate to it's always important to have some sort of shared interest, things that you just enjoy doing together. And uh, it's been great that Louisa and I, we've uh, we found that in many things, in fact, but chess being uh, sort of one of the major ones. You know what is the one story that I really wish, and I have major regrets that I couldn't make it happen, that I wish that you had played for about two more years, and I wish Le'Veon Bell had played uh, for another year or so with the Steelers so that I could have gotten a Ravens-Steelers chess off uh, between <laughs> you and Le'Veon Bell. You know what I really wanted to do? I don't even know if I ever told you this, but mm-hmm. you know, you would have been, been all in with it. It would have been fun, but Le'Veon Bell is a chess freak. Um, and I have no idea if you guys are in the same stratosphere of chess. I truly don't. But what I wanted to do is bring you both to Manhattan. I wanted to bring you both to Union Square, sort of in lower Manhattan. And because oh, that's see. where that's where so many people just sit there uh, and they play chess. And it's all comers. 
You know, it's mm-hmm. it's like it's like pickup basketball. You know, you go to a playground and you just wait around for three on three until you get to try to dethrone the people who are who are the winners. You know, and uh, mm-hmm. I would have loved to have seen that to see the crowd that it that it get that would that would gather. If I can ever oh. make that happen, would you come? Absolutely, and uh, I have to say, like the environment, sort of in like the Union Square like area, it's uh, it's really fun. I've uh, I've played chess there before. You have. What did yeah, you do? Yeah. Did you just walk on? Yeah, you know, you just walk on, and you know, they say you know you can play a game, and it's five dollars. And uh, you know, I, one of my friends was sort of egging me on to do it. Someone who's much stronger at chess than me, and you know, I sat down, I started playing him, but you know, I didn't want to take the guy's money, so you know. I sort of, you know, I said, you know, let's just, let's call it even. You gave me a good game, and uh, but I don't, you know, I don't want your money. Because, you know, <laughs> this is how they make their living. You're too nice. <laughs> no, but, you know, it's random sort of, you know, it's random chess players who are strong at chess. They, they come, they sit down, and these guys don't know. Right. And then all of a sudden they're losing, and now they're losing money, and, you know, that's no good. Yeah. So. Um. John, I it's it's an interesting the way you wrote this book is interesting. And as I last night read about half of it, here's the thing I found. I was really geeking out on the football stuff that you were writing about, like going to the scouting combine and getting so nervous before you're 40 that you couldn't breathe. And I'm thinking to myself, God, here's a guy who, you know, has played in, at Heinz Field in playoff games and who, you know, is doing math at the highest level in the world. And he gets nervous before a 40 at the scouting combine. So, I, I mean, it's but, – but there was stuff like that. And then I kind of skipped over a lot of the math, you know, because it was so far over my head and uh, such a cool example. But – what I found really, really interesting, and this is the thing that I found after I, I closed the book, and so I looked at some of the blurbs that people wrote about you. And mm-hmm. so Adam Grant from the New York Times, who wrote a New York Times bestseller, uh, gave you praise for your book, Mind and Matter, A Life in Math and Football. And he said, John Urschel reminds us that a full life depends on exercising both your brain and your body. And I thought that was a perfect way to, to describe kind of this book and your life. How do you, how do you feel about that? No, no, I think, that's, uh, I think that's perfectly reasonable. I mean, I've gotten a lot of sort of feedback about the book from a lot of different perspectives, but I have to say that, uh, yeah, I feel like I'm living quite a full life, so... I can't argue with that. I'm going to read you two passages, and I want to kind of go back in time um, that I thought that I found were really, really interesting in your book. Okay, mm-hmm. and um, I, 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 I'm just going to read you one, and then I want you to respond to it. Okay. <clears throat> this is when you were leaving Penn State, and you were going to the scouting combine, and also you know, being interviewed by teams about whether they wanted to draft you. Mm-hmm. And one of, it says this, you wrote this. One of my scouting reports begins with the line, highly intelligent, will be successful with or without football. While I very much hope that was true, it was not a point in my favor. In fact, 
it was more of a warning than praise. The phrase, with or without football, raised red flags. In the NFL, football is supposed to be your life. You're supposed to live and breathe football. You're supposed to give everything you have to the game. And if you don't, there are 10 guys who are standing right behind you who will. They're going to need to see that you're totally committed to football, you were warned. Do not, do not talk too much about math. This math thing can wait. Go back in time and tell me what you were thinking then, John. Uh, At that time, I was thinking, I'm very excited to play in the NFL. This is, you know, this is something that, you know, people only dream about being able to do. And I really did at that time believe that I'm going to put math on hold. I'm just going to focus on the NFL. I'm just going to do a little bit of math in my free time, but I'm going to be sort of fully focused on math. And I need to convey that. I mean, sorry, I'm going to be fully focused on football, and I need to convey that. What were what were those talks, those interviews with people in the NFL like? Were there a lot of questions about that? Surprisingly, not too much. I mean, people people knew who I was. People knew my story. People knew my deal. Uh, if anything, it was interesting because it sort of uh, – it didn't lead to more questions, but it actually led to less questions in certain instances. For instance, for offensive linemen, oftentimes they ask, you know, they ask a lot of questions about schemes, about your understanding of things. They ask you to draw things up. They ask you to explain certain things. And I got noticeably less of these types of questions. In fact, you know, I had sort of scouts or offensive line coaches who would come up to me and, you know, they would go through questions with me and it would get to the part where we would have to do all of these things about schemes and testing me. And sometimes they would just look at me and they would just say, you know, we don't need to do this. You're, (laughs) we don't need to do this. Like (laughs) we know that you know your stuff. So you talked in this book, almost like a little bit of a fanboy about one of your teammates, Marshall Yanda and how much you admired him because he was a guard, you were a guard, he was all pro, you were trying to get there. What was it about Yanda that you admired so much, and why did you want to be like him? First of all, he's he's just an amazing football player. He's a future Hall of Famer. He's, you know, he's simply, you know, he's like, he's the best. I mean, I I was just, I was so lucky to be able to be around him for those years and to be able to see the things that he could do. And, you know, as soon as I got to the Ravens, one thing people always told me was, you know, don't, don't look at Marshall Yonda. If you're like trying to see like, you know, technique or things, you know, you should try to do because you can't do the things that Marshall Yonda does (laughs) to the point where, yeah, yeah. I would see him, you know, do things on the football field and I would just, know that, no, I'm not going to try that because I'm not capable of doing it. Wow. Farm boy from Iowa. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I'm going to read you one more passage, and then we're going to talk a little bit about your life now. Um, One more passage I found really interesting, and I've talked to you about this before, because when you stopped playing football, um, I, I, I never forget the first thing I thought. You stopped playing basically after the 2016 season, 
and you 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 stop playing even though you know at age 25 or whatever you were you were getting to a pretty high point in your profession in fact you played a game at Pittsburgh in the playoffs and i'm just going to describe uh this i'm going to read this passage we played our rivals the steelers in the first round of the playoffs at Pittsburgh. As I stood on the field waiting for the coin toss, I looked around. It was a freezing night made worse by a bitter wind, but I could actually feel the angry, rabid heat radiating from the crowd. The stands looked like a swirling mass as the fans waved their terrible towels. The air was filled with the raw sound of people screaming and singing, renegade. When we took the field, all of that fury was directed at our tiny huddle. I relished it for a moment, loving it, before putting my head down and tuning it out. The most beautiful sound I have ever heard in my life was the sound of silence near the end of that game. We had shut the crowd down. We had beaten the Steelers. And, uh, okay, and that's the end of the passage. But when I read that, it, it, it sort of echoed the same question I once asked you. Somebody who really likes football as you do, and somebody who was getting to the top of the profession in football, when you think back on that, I just, it's hard for me to imagine, you know, soon, not long after that, you know, walking away from football. So when you think about it and the dichotomy of the two lives you lived, without trying to get too psychological, just explain to me how you really could walk away and not have apparently, because we've talked about it, even one pang of conscience about it. As crazy as it sounds, I think, I think the person who played that playoff game and the person who sort of retired were very much different people in the sense that, you know, when I played that playoff game and sort of what I was like back then, I couldn't ever imagine myself sort of retiring sort of as early as I did. I mean, even back then I sort of knew I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to be one of these guys who played, you know, eight years or 10 years. But, uh, you know, at that time I thought I would probably play, you know, maybe something like six years, perhaps this was sort of, this is what I had in mind when I was sort of at that time. But, uh, Man, a lot changed. I mean, getting my PhD, sort of working towards my PhD at MIT, that really changed me. I I really came to love math in a way that I never had before once I started at MIT. And then, you know, things I've, I started to do with respect to math outreach, this changed me somewhat. And probably most of all, sort of life changes, you know, with my partner, with my daughter, this, you know, this really sort of changed my perspective about things. Do you believe that uh, much of this had to do with the fact that I can't imagine a more difficult, uh, uh, what's the right word to say, a more difficult discipline in life than being great at math? And I always have wondered, and you've kind of poo-pooed it when we've talked, I've always wondered whether you felt like 
the continuing effects of head trauma really might affect your ability to be a great mathematician. How much do you think as you look back on it now that that had to do with it? I don't think that, uh, I mean, okay, first of all, I can't know, but I don't think sort of, you know, the football that I've played, I've played how many years, you know, college and pro. I don't think that sort of the sort of, you know, damage I've taken sort of with respect to head injuries over that time. I don't think that this sort of has a significant impact on, you know, my, uh, my abilities as a mathematician. I think certainly more so the sort of time it took away from math definitely sort of does, has limited sort of my abilities as a mathematician. And, uh, I am trying to make up for that somewhat now, although, uh, I do have to say that uh, it's not as if math has truly replaced this sort of this great deal of time I spent on football, but uh, more so my daughter has. And I have to say, I've been uh, I've been really enjoying it, like being a very present father. Louisa and I, we've uh, we've decided to not use uh, not use any childcare and sort of our you know the grandparents don't live around Boston, so we're uh, we're doing it ourselves. But uh, I don't think we're going to regret it. You, uh, you know, you can't get this time back. So. Yeah. How old is your daughter now? A uh, year and a half. Wow. What's her name? Uh, Joanna. So it's, uh, yeah, she's, uh, she's very athletic. She's running around these days, says lots of words. She's, uh, she's very resistant to like counting. Like I'm trying to teach her like <laughs> one, two, three, four, five, but she like loves the names of the chess pieces. Which, oh, wow. Yeah. And she loved just like running around and throwing things. So yeah, good, good. John, what what gave you the desire to write a book? Now, I wanted to share sort of my journey and my experiences with mathematics to sort of to a broader audience to show people some of the beauty of math, and just to let people know, like, well, what is mathematics? What's a mathematician? And I took a very sort of holistic point of view in the sense that, you know, if I'm going to talk about my journey in my life, well, of course, there's a lot of football involved. And so at the end of the day, this ended up being, you know, about sort of my journey in math and football. But the motivation was from the math, I must say. And and it's it's interesting exactly how you do the book, because you alternate it. It's not like the first half of the book is about football and the second half is about math. You go back and forth and you can tell how much you love both. Yes, yes. And uh, yeah, although I don't encourage it, you know, you can, if there's, you know, a part of the book that you sort of care about more, you can sort of skim the other chapters and it's clear what's going on in each chapter. Although I would highly encourage you to sort of make sure you read the the math chapters, especially. <laughs> I, I'm going to go back and do it. I'm going to I'm going to go out on this part. If if you had to if you had to guess right now, John, yes. what you're doing in ten years, what you're doing with your life, what you're doing in math, I, I'm so interested to try to figure out where your life is going to go from here. What do you think? Oh, I, I know. Well, I like to think I know exactly where it's going to go. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to be doing exactly the same things I'm doing right now. I'm going to be 
learning math, reading, trying to solve important and interesting math problems. I'm going to be raising my daughter, spending time with her. I'm going to be spending time with my partner. I'll, you know, spend some time doing some chess. I'll continue to sort of do math outreach and try to work to sort of popularize math and also promote sort of educational equity in mathematics. And uh, if anything, perhaps I'll sort of be a little bit, maybe a lot more out of the media, which I, I will be looking forward to. But other than that, I think... But I uh, haven't seen a lot of you in the media recently. Have you been? Uh, I'm talking to you. I, uh, I <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yeah. These are, uh, you know, this is, this is me in the public eye. And, uh, you know, just me personally, I'm, uh, I'm generally not a very public person. But, uh, but this, felt, this felt important to me. Mind and Matter, A Life in Math and Football by John Urschel and Louisa Thomas. It is by Penguin Press. Um, and the publication date is in May. So what I want you to do, book is out. Go out and get it for a Father's Day person, a father, a brother, an uncle, uh, who really enjoys reading about fascinating people because that's what John Urschel is. John, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Support for the Peter King Podcast comes from Wix. That's Wix.com. With Wix, you can create your very own professional website. Choose a template you love and customize it by adding your own text, images, and videos. With hundreds of intuitive design features, you can tell your story exactly the way you want. Want even more for your website? You can easily start a blog, launch an online store, or create an event. Share everything in a click on social media and drive even more traffic to your site with SEO tools to get found on Google. Wix has all the tools you need to create the exact website you want. You can even create a beautiful website while listening to this podcast. Though, I don't know why you'd love to do that, because you should really memorize every word in my podcast. It's that important to mankind. Anyway, over 140 million people choose Wix to create their website. So create yours today. Get started now by going to Wix.com. That's W-I-X dot com slash Peter King to get 10% off. Wix dot com slash Peter King. You'll be glad you did. And now my conversation with the New York Times' John Branch, who's written a great book, The Last Cowboys. Back on the Peter King Podcast, so happy to be joined by a writer who I admire greatly, John Branch of the New York Times. Uh, he is a winner of the Pulitzer Prize. Um, several years ago, he wrote a, a great uh, series about avalanches and the science of avalanches and also the people who get caught in them. And uh, there's just so much about John's career that's interesting. We're going to touch a little bit on that, but... First, we're going to talk about a book he has out that I really, really like a lot. It's called The Last Cowboys, A Pioneer Family in the New West. And it's basically about when you think of 
farmers, ranchers, people of the land in the United States, and you watch television today, and or you listen, you know, maybe to Morning Edition, or you, you, you know, you just you follow the news in the United States. You know that it is getting harder and harder and harder for people who have lived off the land forever. Um, you know, family after family, generations, to continue doing that. And John wrote a really, really good book um, about the Bill Wright family in Utah. Um, They basically have a ranch not far from Zion National Park, but also they are a rodeo family. They're kind of a rodeo dynasty family. And what I really like about the book is how John has basically just involved himself in their lives. He's there. He takes you places. I once had a journalism professor who told me at Ohio University who told me, your job is to take people where they cannot go or where they will never go. And I doubt I'll ever go to the Bill Wright Ranch in Utah and 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 hang out with his family. But if you read this book, you understand the trials, the tribulations, the uh, the, the, the work that goes into not only maintaining a ranch, but in being great at, at, at rodeo. It's just a very, very interesting story. But anyway, John, I've talked enough. <laughs> I want to get you a little bit involved now. And, and I'll, I guess I'll start by asking you, where did you get the idea for this book? Yeah, well, thanks, Peter. And it's quite an honor to be here on your show. So thank you. Um, yeah, the, the idea came from an old editor of mine. Uh, I used to work at the Fresno Bee. I was a sports columnist there. And the editor of the paper was an old cowboy named Charlie Waters. And he had bounced around the West at various papers from Reno to Fresno to Las Vegas. But he was from Kingman, Arizona. And um, I left the Bee and moved to New York for the Times. And he retired and we would go have breakfast whenever I was in Las Vegas where he had retired. And over breakfast one day, he said, you know anything about the Wright brothers? And I said, no. And, and, and as he explained who they were, I, and I don't know if you said this or I said this, but this is something that you might appreciate. Basically, we've, we realized that the Wright boys, and there's a bunch of them that um, dominate rodeo, they're basically the Mannings of pro rodeo, except if the Mannings had about three or four more brothers who had won Super Bowls. <laughs> um, they they dominate. You know, there's, there's a father who um, sort of got them all going, and now there's all sorts of brothers, and now the, some of the kids are um, actually winning world championships in rodeo. So that's where the story came from, was an old newspaper editor of mine. One of the things that I like about the book, um, and again, I'm with John Branch of the New York Times. He's wrote a book called The, the Last Cowboys. Um, one of the things I really like about the book is that I like writing that really uh, drags you into it immediately. And there is um, the the prologue of this book, you know, before we really get into it, is a, I don't know, a five to seven page riveting uh, story of when Bill Wright had a young boy, Cody, uh, who was about mm-hmm. five years old at the time. And um, he he basically uh, was was working this this area of the river in which in Utah, in which um, he basically had to take a horse across the river. And sometimes you got caught in currents, and you had to be careful. And Bill Wright basically warned Cody, you know, very very important. Hey, listen, 
And I'm going to read it. He says, you need to stay with your horse no matter what happens in the water. You cling to your horse. And I don't want to give away the story, but it is so spectacular what happens over the next few pages and where this petrified dad who wonders if he has lost his son forever in this raging river, what happens at the end of this little story. And so I just say to myself, (laughs) after I read that, after anybody reads that little six, seven page prologue, it's like the beginning of a Grisham book. You know, I always say (laughs) that one of the reasons that I've, I've read everything that Grisham has ever written. And I, I always think that what makes his books, one of the things that really makes his books great is that after 15 pages, you're done. You you know, you need to put life on hold for the next two days because you're reading this book. And that's kind of the way I felt about this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, thank you. And it's funny because that's, it's sort of a setup for the rest of the book because the, the book takes place in the present time, basically over a three-year period. Um, and Cody, not to give away too much, but Cody survives the river. Um, they go on to live, you know, happily ever after. Um, but I needed a way to fit that, I thought, a very intriguing story into the book, and we thought, let's put it in the prologue, and I think it's a, it's, you know, a reasonable setup, um, especially given the fact that, you know, Bill's mantra to his son was always hold on to your horse, and had no idea at the time that Cody would end up being a um, world champion saddle bronc rider years later by clinging to his horse. That's really interesting. John, you, as you know, when I called to ask you if you would do this, I I write about father, I write about books every June because I I hope that people who don't read very much anymore would yep. find time to read a book and this was one of my recommendations this year. And so for Father's Day, what I thought was especially interesting too and when we were going back and forth you echoed it. Mm-hmm. Um you know that this is a real Father's Day story in so many ways because bill uh bill wright and cody and also cody's sons uh i think uh you know really make a great story about fathers and sons and grandfathers and grandsons yeah it's funny because when i wrote the book i was trying to figure out sort of the the structure of the book and it does take place basically in real time over three years following the boys um, on the rodeo circuit and following Bill mostly on his ranch trying to grow this this cattle herd amidst a lot of pressures across the West, everything from climate change to um, just suburban growth and um, land use and so on. But I think that the main thread of it is, and I'm glad you picked up on this, is it's a generational story. It's really about Bill and his wife, Evelyn, um, and then their kids. They have 13 kids. Cody is the oldest boy. And then Cody's sons, who are now 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, um, following their their dad's lead into rodeo. Um, So it really is a three-generation book, and the story is told through those three generations over about three years. So I'm I'm glad you picked up on that, Peter. Thank you. Yeah. Um, Why, if you were recommending people, if you were recommending your book to people and you sort of told them, here's why I really think you should read it in today's society. What would you say? Yeah, you know, you, you, 
you said this in your in your introduction. I think you know a lot of us that live on the coast, and I live in California, and um, you know we fly over flyover country. And if we still open up our shades, which people don't do very much anymore, um, and look down there at these empty spaces of land between the coasts, I think if you zoomed in on that, you would really find people like the Wrights that are just working their tails off to try to make a go of it on the land. Um, in those nooks and crannies of that landscape are people like the Wrights. And I think they're indicative of what countless others are going through. And that is, across the West, this urbanization. You know, how do you keep your kids involved in the family business, especially if it's something like ranching? Um, it's climate change. The Wrights have a ranch, and it's a very small operation, relatively small operation outside of Zion National Park. But they're dealing with things like drought and water, and that really affects things like a cattle herd. Um, they are in a weird position because they have um, been ranching and running cattle on this land for 150 years. They were part of the Mormon migration back in the 1860s. And so they've had this piece of land that is now literally on the doorstep of Zion National Park. It's as, as pretty as any land you'll see in this country. But they can't grow the cattle operation there because they're surrounded by Zion and Bureau of Land Management um, property and private property that has now become way too expensive to, to ever buy up to try to expand their operation. And so the, the, the yin and yang of this story is really how does Bill Wright hang on to the past while trying to build a future for his kids? And I think that's an American story right there. How you, you made a point about that he is really hesitant to sort of glom on to climate change and to yeah. to sort of embrace it as a reality, almost like he doesn't want to believe it. Yeah, you know, it's funny because we didn't go too deep into it, and the story really doesn't, like, step back and say, let's talk about climate change. Um, but like a lot of things, Bill just deals with things as they come. And it really doesn't matter to him how the climate's being affected 30 years from now. What he knows is that the ponds on his property, which used to be full every winter, are now drying, or now not full by the end of the winter, or they dry up very quickly in summer. He knows that the kind of um, feed for his cows, the natural weeds and flowers and things that the cows have been consuming for decades are changing. Um, you know, is it climate change? He doesn't really care what the cause is. He just knows that this is affecting me and I have to deal with it. And what's wonderful about this family, and it's sort of, I think, evokes kind of a um, by the bootstrap, by the bootstraps mentality that is part of ranching, part of rodeo, is you just kind of deal with it. You get back on your horse. And so when a rainstorm comes and floods out something and you and you can't get your cattle across you just deal with it and find another way when the when the horse bucks you off you get back up on that horse um this family is as resilient as any people i've ever met um but they don't think of things in terms of the big picture like it's not climate change whatever the causes are my life i need to do things a little bit differently now whatever that is whatever that means science wise it doesn't really matter to me i just know that my world is uh changing a little bit is the right family going to make it long term? Yeah, I mean they certainly will. They're they're expanding. I mean they grow. They tend to have a lot of kids. Um, they're doing very very well. What I think the the um, the big question, which you know, if you read the book, you'll realize that I've kind of left it unanswered because I don't know the answer, is can they hang on to this land that they've had for 150 years? And how do you trade 150 years of heritage for maybe a brighter future? Um, I am, I'm very optimistic that they will, they will continue to do well and, you know, by the bootstraps, they will hang in there and this family will be around for a long time in rodeo and across, you know, the ranching world. Um, 
But the question is, can they do what they've been doing all these years on the land that means so much to them? Or do they have to kind of pick up and move out of the way of everybody else? Um, and that's that's a tough question for them. Yeah. Um, I'm with John Branch of the New York Times. Uh, John, I want to talk a little bit about writing in our remaining time. Yep. Um, I've, I think one of the things that really attracts me to your writing is is that, you know, there are a lot of writers who I have tremendous respect for because they really write a great paragraph, you know, and you are one of those guys. But after a while, you know, the the maybe the lyrical nature of someone's verse, of, of someone's style, um, it isn't that it gets old, but it has to have something more. It can't yep. just have... Um, something that uh, that you look at and and say, man, that's beautiful. That's beautiful writing. And after a while, you want to be right. educated a little bit. And that's one it, of the things. Substance, yeah, you need substance. Style. You need substance. And so I, I've I've got a couple of a couple of things that that just from my memory um, that I want to talk to you about a couple of stories you have done in recent years for the Times. One of them is about a guy named Derek Bugard. And Derek Bugard, um, uh, uh, who uh, is is dead, is a former NHL player and a former NHL enforcer. Basically, he's a goon. And mm -hmm. you uh, basically wrote a book about his life called Boy on Ice, The Life and Death of Derek Bugard. And there's one part of that story that you wrote, and you've written about Derek Bugard extensively in the New York Times, and one of your mm -hmm. lessons, one of your theories is that, hey, you know, people over the years have killed the NFL, and rightfully so, and killed football in general um, for, uh, you know, its, its lax approach for so many years to CTE and head trauma in general. And yet, uh, you you wrote very recently that uh, at at Gary Bettman's postseason press conference, he wasn't even asked about anything about head trauma or CTE, you know, or suicides of players or drug overdoses. Um, right. And it was really, and it and it really, I think it was a it was a good bit of of just being mindful um, that that is all a part of it. But I want to go back. And I want to ask you one specific thing that I remember vividly about your reporting on Bugard. So when Derek Bugard was a little kid, 14 or 15 years old, I forget, you, you chronicled how he was just sort of this awkward player, I think out in Saskatchewan, way out in that Western Canada. And you wrote about how he was an uninspired pick he wasn't a real nhl prospect but then there were a bunch of scouts at a game he played out in saskatchewan in which he just beat the crap out of a bunch of other 14 or 15 year old kids and i will never forget this sentence and i looked it up just to make sure that i had it correct and i remember it well that one of the scouts sent back a report and 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 you know that this guy might really be a prospect and this scout essentially said and you thought maybe this guy could be an animal one day 
And that, to me, that just encapsulates everything about, and look, I like hockey. I like watching hockey. But I think it is insane that players are allowed to fight uh, bare-knuckled in hockey. I just think, I I don't, I just think it's insane. But anyway, it is what it is. So I am just curious about your thoughts about reporting and about putting Mm -hmm. things like that in your stories and how important is that to your final product? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And, you know, you and I don't know each other well, but I've always thought you do this very well also. is You know, our our job here, besides what your professor said about pulling back the curtain or taking people back to places where they could never go themselves, which is brilliant, and I've said many times, but our job is to try to humanize these people. And I think especially when you cover things like football or hockey or any other sort of violent or semi-violent sport, it's easy to dehumanize people. And my job, as I see it, is to make sure that people who read this understand there's a kid here, there's a boy here, there's a young man here, whatever the um, sport might be, a young woman here. Um, and that was, you know, one of those cases where he was a 14-year-old kid, and the scouts suddenly saw him fight and thought, wow, this guy could be a monster. Um, you know, they, they'd already dehumanized him at the age of 14 in some ways. And, you know, as a parent myself, um, you know, it's frustrating. You want, you want these people, and sometimes I write about people who have died, and it's the same thing. You want them, you want people to understand what these people were like in flesh and blood, um, all the nuances, all the good, all the bad. And we try to paint people one way or the other, I think, a lot, and nobody is, can be painted that broadly. Everybody is really, really complex. And that's what people like you and I try to do, is let's, um, let's dig into the complexities of, of people's character. The the other thing I think that you do so well um, is you make people emote. And um, I cried at the end of one of your stories. And that was, it was a story uh, that is in, was entitled The Girl in the Number 8 Jersey. Mm. And so for those who don't know, um, in 2017, um John, who lives in California, was dispatched to Las Vegas after the shooter at the Mandalay Bay Casino, um, you know, had gone on his murderous rampage. Um, And when John went, he he didn't know sort of how close he was going to be to this story. But I want to read just a couple of things in John's story entitled The Girl in the Number 8 Jersey, and this is the lead. Novato, California. I was on the sideline of a soccer field two Saturdays ago, watching my 12-year-old daughter and her Novato teammates. I don't remember much about the game, but Novato won, and one of the goals was scored by the smallest girl on the team, a quick and feisty forward who wears a long ponytail and jersey number eight. We whooped and cheered her name. I found out later that her parents weren't there that afternoon. They were in Las Vegas for a getaway weekend. As it turns out, when John went to uh, Las Vegas, he did find out that um, the woman who was on the getaway weekend is a woman named Stacy Etcherby, and she was killed uh, by the gunman from the Mandalay Bay Hotel. And this is how John uh, Branch finishes his story. It's about a soccer game that happened two weeks after 
that first goal that he saw the girl in the number eight jersey score. He writes, Our team's coach asked the parents to stand for 30 seconds of silence before the game. And then two of our league's better teams played a rather meaningless soccer game. Only this one felt about as meaningful as anything I've ever watched. And it was late in the second half when the ball suddenly swung from one end to the other. And Stacy's daughter gave chase through three retreating opponents and beat them all to the ball. And in one blink-and-you-missed-it moment, she booted the ball into the corner of the net for what held on as the winning goal. Her teammates chased and swarmed her. And they and she looked as free and as happy as girls can be on a sunny fall Saturday afternoon with their friends. The parents jumped and cheered as loudly as I've heard parents cheer at any kid's soccer game. Behind my sunglasses, I was bawling. It was the first time I'd cried all week. Man, that is a hell of a job, John Branch. Well, thank you, Peter. It's um, interesting because it's like tears me up just thinking about it. Um, I just saw my, my daughter. They're 14 now. She and Stacy's daughter and their classmates still. And they um, had their big middle school, end of middle school dance. And so as uh, my wife was taking pictures, she sent one. And there was my daughter and, and the girl in jersey number eight, um, all smiles, all dressed up. How's the girl um, doing? You can, you, yeah, I think she's doing. I think she's doing very well. Um, and it's it, it was a, it, uh, certainly a strange thing to run to like this natural or national tragedy, only to find out behind me was where the real mourning was going on. You know, as as that story talks about, my kids and my wife then were all part of the team. The people that were hanging orange ribbons all through my town and going to the wakes and um, all the memorial services that we've now come to. Um, to recognize every time there's some sort of mass shooting, holding up candles and that sort of thing. And I was in Las Vegas and I felt weirdly detached from the tragedy, even though I was actually staying at the Mandalay Bay for a week uh, reporting on it. It was only when I got back home that, you know, the gravity or maybe the humanness of it um, really, really hit me with a thud. You know what the craziest thing about that is? I mean, you can, most of these, most of these stories, you kind of have a very good understanding about as insane as they are, and I am as big an advocate for gun control as there is, but um, I, I still don't have any idea why this guy did it. Do you? No, I don't think they've ever figured it out, or if they have, they haven't told anybody else that I know. Um, yeah, and, you know, does it help? I don't know if that helps or not, um, but it is strange how it just kind of fades away, and, you know, we've had mass shootings even the last week or so, and it's strange how they're not always the top of the news even anymore. And if they are, they fade away um, within the next news cycle. Uh, we've become kind of numb to it, and I think we've accepted it to some degree. Um, and I always say this about any sort of you know, tragedy or story. It's, you know, until it becomes personal, I think it's really hard to understand all these things like shootings or you, know, you can take any subject across the country. And until it really hits home, you know, it's kind of a theoretical thing. And I think... Um, gun violence is certainly one of those. And so, you know, I mentioned that story too. I was, I was at an avalanche practice the day that Columbine happened in suburban Denver and I rushed and covered Columbine. And here we are 20 years later and, and I had no idea at the time there'd be so many more Columbines over the next 20 years. 
John Branch, um, the author of The Last Cowboys, A Pioneer Family in the New West. I strongly recommend it. You get such a great you-are-there feeling about a part of the country that 95% of us will never truly understand or feel or know. Um, And I really hope you get it, and I hope you read it. And John, I can't thank you enough for joining me and talking about both this book and about writing in general. Thank you. I'm I'm so um so happy to do it Peter. I'm a big fan of yours and this means a ton to have to have me on your show. So thank you. Thanks to my guests John Urschel and John Branch. If you enjoyed these conversations, be sure to listen and subscribe to the other great episodes in my podcast series such as my conversations with Roger Goodell, Tom Brady, and John Elway. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Don't forget to leave a review while you're there. You can also hear the Peter King Podcast on Sirius XM Radio every Saturday morning at 7 Eastern on Mad Dog Sports Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 82. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. And thanks, of course, to my sponsor, Wix. Please support Wix the way they support this podcast. And I'll see you next time.